from across the globe. From the center of aerospace. And now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we are very pleased to be here. Uh, Dan and I uh, have been working on the project uh, for almost three years now. Actually, I'm, I think I'm just over three years now. So uh, uh, it's been a very exciting project. We have a, uh, what I hope for you is an engineering, an interesting engineering and flight test presentation. Uh, we don't have a good marketing brief for you, so, but if you do want to buy airplanes, just get with us afterwards. Uh, and uh, so I would like to say, just to that point, uh, first, thank you to Steve Chadwick for helping to organize all of this. He's, uh, it's his card that's in the pamphlets, and, uh, and he's our one of our representatives over here in the UK and has just been doing a lot of great work to help set things like this up. And then right next to him is George Sanchez, and he's a number member another member of the Textron Airland team. Uh, he's part of our business development team. And so uh, as we wrap up tonight, uh, if you do have questions, uh, you know, as we're in the networking event afterwards or the, more importantly, the drinks event, uh, uh, George also is very well versed on, a, uh, on the story of the Scorpion. So uh, we have plenty of people that are here that can help talk about it. So I'll uh, go ahead and get started. Uh, this is kind of an interesting uh, presentation for us. Uh, We've commented several times that sooner or later we're going to have to sit down and write a book. And, and uh, Dan and I, uh, this is the first time we've actually made this presentation. Uh, so uh, uh, maybe this is the start of the book. Uh, hopefully it won't take 200 pages worth to talk about it tonight. But uh, I've been accused of being able to talk uh, for several hours on one slide. So hopefully we'll do OK here. Um, just what we're going to talk a little bit about tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about where the Scorpion came from and how did we develop it. Uh, how did we get into the flight test? What, what, what went into that work? And we're going to talk a little bit about the last year of flight testing. We made a lot of progress and a lot of accomplishments in just one year and then really where we're going. So we're going to kind of, like I say, keep it a little lighthearted. Hopefully you guys will have some fun with it. This slide, uh, this is like our get on the stage slide for just about every presentation that we do. Uh, I, I was hired in December of 2011, and the team formally started in, in January of 2012. And we were given some really audacious goals, uh, the first one being to develop, uh, design, develop, and build uh, and fly an all-new multi-mission ISR strike aircraft in less than 24 months. Uh, we had a number of corporate objectives around building the airplane out of composites, uh, for the purpose of having a long uh, fatigue life and uh, good corrosion resistance. Uh, we also wanted to be used, we were asked to be used as an incubator to try to find ways to uh, reduce the amount of time it takes to get new products into the market and learn some lessons for the rest of Textron. So uh, we had a lot of interesting challenges ahead of us. And uh, I will tell you when I uh, threw the picture of the aircraft that people were going to be working on, because those 12 people that were with me that day, uh, they didn't know what they got recruited to work on. It was a secret. And so I put the picture up, and I was like, whoa, all right. And then I showed them the schedule, and uh, they panicked. <laughs> <laughs> and then they got on board. Uh, coincidentally, we hired Dan uh, to fly business jets. And we didn't tell him what he was going to be working on. And so we brought him into the room on his second day of employment. And, uh, and uh, we showed him what he was going to We asked him if he'd be interested in working on this. And he had this big grin on his face. And he tried to act like he was going to go think about it. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, it's been a lot of fun since then. So anyway, we worked a very aggressive parallel schedule. And uh, you'll see some of that as it comes through tonight as we talk about the rapid, rapid prototyping development that we did. Interestingly enough, right after we started working on the project, we, we were introduced to uh, Dr. Dan Pat at DARPA. And uh, this was, uh, the introduction was made by one of our colleagues at another Textron division. And it turns out he was working on this project to try to understand why it takes so long to develop new aircraft. So you can see up until about 1975, it typically took about five years for new aircraft to be conceived and then be into the market. And then after that, as the aircraft uh, maybe became, uh, previously they were more specialized, so you had a large number of aircraft. Uh, after that, they, 
uh, became more of a one-size-fits-all solution, and, and we're all familiar with some of the stories of some of these aircraft that have taken a long time to develop. Uh, on the other hand, the commercial aircraft are still around five years. Uh, Cessna is typically four to five years. And then, uh, but on the automotive side, they have continually continued to get better. And so they're able to bring new products to market very quickly that always have the latest features and always have the best technology. And I think this was an area of interest for Dr. Pat. So this, is, this was just interesting, and, and it really shows the challenge that we have and, and, and maybe uh, bragging a little bit what we were able to accomplish. Our commercial approach, just to kind of ground everybody in what, I, what I'm talking about when I say commercial approach, it's how we develop the airplane. Uh, we, we did a market assessment uh, to identify what type of aircraft we might want to buy. Uh, we had some high-level program objectives and aircraft requirements that we designed to. I had to create a very lean organization. Actually, I had to create an organization um, and, then, uh, and, and then we really wanted to reuse as many existing systems as possible. Uh, and I think the most important part, we developed our own requirements, we worked our own schedule, and we were 100% company funded by Textron off of Textron's bottom line. So there was no government funding, no cost plus program. This was ran the same way that Textron develops all of its other commercial products, whether it's a Citation Jet or a Jacobson Lawnmower. Our market assessment, we looked at the types of missions that were typically being flown in the last uh, 10 to 15 years, uh, counterinsurgency type missions, uh, border security, maritime patrols, uh, even humanitarian assistance, sometimes just looking for people after a natural disaster such as a hurricane or a tsunami. Um, all of these missions, uh, many of these missions require the ability to stay on station for an extended period of time, to be able to loiter and hang out, look for targets, and if necessary, strike them. It's said that often it's easy, it's it's uh, hard to find targets. We know how to we know how to to strike them when we find them, but we typically struggle to find them. And so uh, these are the missions that we were looking at. And we looked at the airplanes uh, that are currently being produced. And on the high end, the fourth and fifth generation fighters, literally the best of the best. You got to have those. They're not going to go away. The missions for those aren't going to go away. But on the other end, you had turboprops and uh, you know, some of the unmanned systems. Uh, they're filling a different need, and they're at the other end of the spectrum. But out in the middle, there's really there's not a lot of currently produced airplanes. These ISR strike missions are really in that middle space. You're typically flying in permissive environment for an, for an airplane. You're not being shot at. Um, and uh, you, you need to be able to stay on station for a long period of time. And we, we fill these roles with F-16s and F-18s and A-10s, and we're literally flying the wings off of some of these high-end airplanes instead of saving them for the big fight that they're really required for. This space used to be filled by a ton of airplanes. Um, the A-37, for example, was built by Cessna in the 1960s and 70s. Over 500 of these A-37s were produced. Countries are still flying them today or at least they're still on the books as being flown today. So these aircraft are still in service, but they're aging. Or many of these aircraft that used to fill this space have retired. And so we, we, we perceived this to be a large gap that could be filled with a, different, with a different aircraft that was modern and affordable. So that's really where we brought the Scorpion in. We wanted to target it as an affordable aircraft uh, to acquire, but then also looking at the real cost of the aircraft, the life cycle cost, uh, we also wanted it to be designed uh, to have an affordable life cycle. Some more about going fast. Uh, so these initial slides are really kind of focused on how we did it. Uh, we had high-level requirements. Uh, we, 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 instead of having thousands of pages of requirements really that over-constrained the designers, we established high-level requirements that were required just for the airplane. We knew we wanted a two-person cockpit that could be flown from either cockpit. We knew that we wanted this large payload bay to make it easy to integrate new sensors. Uh, we wanted to go to 45,000 feet, and we wanted to you know, fly so fast, and we really kept it to a fairly low number of requirements. Uh, really, again, we wanted to free the designers up to make quick decisions. I had to build an organization. Uh, and, and the chart on the right, you can see a comparison of my team getting to first flight and what the headcount levels looked like compared to other programs. This is a real chart. Uh, 
we had a team that was extremely focused. Uh, we were isolated in a building that we call the Glass House uh, out, of, out of Cessna. It has office space and a hangar so that we can have the engineering staff and they, we build the airplane right there. This team was incredibly focused and motivated. Uh, our decision making was uh, very fast and efficient. We made decisions in hours. We had a very flat organization. Our organization is Bill Anderson, who's the president of Textron Airland, Dan and I, and then the people that work for us. And so when we need to make decisions, we, we, we know where to go to make those decisions. And uh, so we're able to move very quickly, and we pushed a lot of our decisions down to our, uh, our team leads. And then everybody had to develop this rapid prototyping mindset, except the fact that an 80% solution that could be easily adaptable to many different missions uh, would be a, a lot easier and a lot faster than trying to find that one-size-fits-all solution. And we knew we needed to maximize the use of mature, high-technology high systems. Some of these non-developmental systems, the engines and avionics are off existing uh, aircraft today. They're used on both commercial and military aircraft. Uh, the ejection seats are the uh, ejection seats that come off of a T-38 upgrade program. Uh, we modified the structure of the cockpit to accommodate the seats. It made a lot more sense than saying, hey, go change your seat because I don't want to change my cockpit. One's cheap, one's expensive. And so we, we, we used that decision making to, uh, to really help us go fast. And then we used a lot of components off of existing Citation aircraft when they would meet the spec, things like air valves, um, hydraulic components, flight control actuators. Uh, we had these things sitting on the shelf. They had a known reliability and cost and very easy to go uh, fast with. Uh, with minimal changes, by using these parts, it really reduced our risk and enabled us to go very quickly, and we weren't spending time developing a new engine when we really needed to be focusing on getting to first flight. This has really turned into the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, the, air, the airplane has continued to have exceptional reliability now because we, we're, we don't have a, a non-developmental engine. I'm sorry, we have a non-developmental engine, and, uh, and so we don't spend a lot of time fixing problems with the systems. We do have scheduled downtimes where we add features to the airplane. For example, we recently added ice protection to the airplane. Uh, it was a planned modification. Um, but when we, air, when we get out of those mod cycles and those downtimes, we typically just keep flying. And, uh, and it's very productive time for us. We're not troubleshooting some of these systems components. The airplane, this is just kind of an overview of the airplane. These were the design targets that we set. Uh, 11,800 pound standard empty weight, 21,000 pound max takeoff weight. We have about 9,000 pounds of useful load between fuel and payload. And we wanted to go 450 knots. Aircraft, the wingspan is about 48 feet and about 45 feet length overall. To put that in perspective, that's about the same size as, as an F-16. The payload bay was the main design feature of the airplane. Uh, you know, nothing says structurally efficient like cutting a massive hole in the bottom of an airplane. Uh, it's a 14-foot long hole, three feet wide. It's just a square box. It makes it easy to integrate new sensors, new radars, new cameras into the airplane. We, we use pallets, and we just raise them up into that airplane and latch them in. And then the skin panel on the bottom of it is also non-structural, so if you need a hole for a camera, or if you need a special uh, type of material for a radar, uh, you can use whatever you want to use without doing a lot of analysis on the airplane. And so the ability to carry different types of payloads uh, in this big empty box and do it and make it designed in a way so that it would be easy to integrate new things was really one of our key design features. The mission systems, we've tried to keep it very open. Uh, again, one of our design requirements, uh, we actually, in this case, we've we've uh, separated the what we call the mission systems, uh, those systems that manage the sensors and the weapons on the airplane. Uh, we've isolated those from the avionics system, the parts that you need to aviate, navigate, communicate. So the things that you need to safely continue safe flight of the airplane, uh, those typically don't change. The pieces that you do change a lot with the, uh, with the sensors, uh, they talk to each other, but you can change one without having to check all of the software on the other. So. Again, that life cycle cost requirement that we had to try to use an open type of system uh, was really one of our key, key features as well. And then uh, 
Finally, uh, we have six, uh, six pylons. Uh, that was designed in the airplane as well. The inboard stations are wet. All the pylons are designed for 500-pound class weapons and below, and uh, uh, precision and non-precision. So as we were putting the airplane together and getting ready to start designing it, these were a lot of the things that we were talking about at that point in time. So with that, I think it's uh, no, that's right. You could for me. That'd be great. Sir, I was thinking about what business jet I'd come in and, uh, and work on, and uh, you could have knocked me over with a feather, and I, as Dale said, I was pretty transparent on my response to, you got to be kidding me. Uh, I'd just come off of uh, weaponizing a light trainer into a light attack airplane and uh, shooting all kinds of missiles and dropping bombs and what have you, so it was a bit of a lightning strike price uh, sort of experience. Uh, the other thing was, as opposed to integrating in and figuring out how to do the civil certification program, it was, okay, now I have to plan for a first flight of a clean sheet airplane. That's a little bit different from what I was expecting. So what exactly do you do first? Uh, so my role initially began there in May, uh, so uh, somewhere on the order of four months uh, after uh, Dale had gotten the team together and started. Uh, and then I just set about uh, working with all the various engineering staff and uh, helping with the design. Uh, a lot of collaboration with uh, meetings and such, and I had a lot of stuff to leverage up front. Leveraged the entire uh, system that Cessna and Textron has uh, for building airplanes and for testing them. So a lot of electronic tools already available for uh, routing test plans or, or getting airplanes in the right configuration, controlling configuration, getting those airplanes ready for flight test and tracking the tests that we did, all that sort of stuff. Of course, I was sequestered into a you know, black program, if you were, a secret program. I didn't have anybody around me that knew this stuff because I was brand new to Cessna. So it was a bit of an uh, ongoing challenge. You know, two years later, I have still going meeting people that work in the company that I had never met before. Uh, but I didn't really have to worry about the systems that were in place. Uh, I didn't have to create those kind of systems. I had to focus on the airplane uh, with Dale and Dale's team. Next. Okay, so how do you do that? Uh, well, an army of one, as it were, is not enough to build an airplane. Uh, as much as I trust my own opinion, naturally it's the best, uh, I occasionally had to allow for uh, space that someone else's opinion might be valuable as well. So I did get uh, a group of pilots together, selected some guys with military experience and the rest of the company, pulled those over and formed up an operational advisory group, maybe be better termed a cockpit development working group uh, type of uh, exploration there. Uh, meanwhile, the guys built uh, a nice wooden cockpit there. And this was the macro level about, no, that, that goes there, that goes there. Uh, you know, I'm a big guy, I can fit in it. And we get some folks with different body shapes to fit in it. All that kind of uh, beginning level. Uh, work to be done on there, and uh, we've since built another one of these for the uh, for the next version. Uh, incredibly important. It seems kind of funny to build one out of out of wood and put your best example of a seat in there, but oh my gosh, was that ex uh, of great value. Another reason why we go fast. One more slide. Uh, we had great uh, visions of uh, what we do with a handling quality simulator, and the simulator was actually built up with uh, the right aero loads and, and uh, force feel and all that kind of stuff in it. Uh, but I didn't have any the test, uh, flight test data iterating uh, what it actually felt like. So ultimately, what I ended up using this tool for uh, had some great graphics of the local area, McConnell Air Force Base. Uh, we were off-site from the normal uh, Cessna field and needed to get back into how to operate uh, from uh, McConnell Air Force Base. So use this as a tool to get familiar with that. So by the time it came to first flight, I had already flown off of McConnell Air Force Base quite a bit. It was, I knew what it looked like. It was all good. Next slide. Uh, here's kind of what we got to with the, uh, the airplane that we have now. Uh, realized it's a flight test airplane, so we had some flight test components to put in there. This was largely the product of that wooden cockpit or that mock pit, uh, as we called it and uh, a collection of roughly half a, half a dozen different guys to sit down and, uh, and work on where things go. You know, throttles over here, kind of electrical air stuff generally over here, uh, and working your way around the, uh, down, around the cockpit um, in a somewhat normal fashion, normal for uh, fast jets, if you will. Uh, not really any oddities uh, other than we generated space in the center with that center pedestal as a result of, hey, I need more room. Let's put a center pedestal in there. Can you guys do it? Yeah, we can do it. Hey, that, that helps with structures anyway. Uh, we started doing that. Uh, obviously, the, uh, the center taken up by the uh, large selection of glass we have there. The smaller displays are 4x5, we call them 450s, and then the 680s I'll refer to the center and the right display with the radio control uh, head up in the top left. 
So we move things uh, as if we were playing Mr. Potato Head quite a bit, uh, up until the point where he said stop and uh, we're going to build it. Uh, and then we're still kind of moving things around. So uh, let's go with the next one. Uh, aft cockpit looks very much the same. In the next airplane that we build, we're going to take the center and the right one and, and put a large screen display in there like uh, Dale showed you in a few slides ago. But otherwise, the idea was make them very much the same. Makes it tremendously easy to go from the front cockpit to the rear cockpit. There's only a couple of emergency controls in the front that, uh, that you don't have replicated in the back. You could start the airplane and fly it from the back as long as everything so you don't have to emergency blow down the gear and what have you. Next slide. Okay, so those displays, I'm going to show this slide again later and talk about what's on it a little bit, uh, just to the context of the presentation there. Uh, but the short answer is you can put a lot of different kind of displays on each one of these. The center display is the primary flight display, so the top center of the skies up, grounds down has got to be there. All the rest of them, including the 450 that's off to the side here, are what do you want to put on there. So naturally you put one pilot in there, you get about three opinions, you put a couple, you know, it goes exponential pretty fast as far as what we do. We make no attempt to, to stipulate a standard other than the top center has to be MFT, or uh, I'm sorry, PFT. So even now I'm changing. All right, next slide. All righty. So that, that great big space in the, in, uh, in the middle of the airplane seemed like a perfect opportunity to fill it up with flight test instrumentation. So we're carrying a ton of uh, extra stuff in there. So everything uh, that we do is recorded and nothing's hanging external. That allows us to drop the entire pallet in and out uh, at will and basically design and change what we want. And the other key piece of that, next slide, is uh, one of the key characteristics of the uh, glass that we put in the airplane was the ability to pipe video directly into it. So if you imagine uh, the kid in the candy store from an instrumentation perspective, I can sit down on a piece of paper, draw up what kind of instrumentation I want, depending upon the flight test that I'm doing, design the display for it, have it turned in a couple of hours, and it's displaying in the cockpit because I want that particular new parameter for the test that I'm working on. Or I can go, I'm trying to hit a stall point. What I really need is something that tells me the rate that I'm entering with. I can iterate and go, not quite, yeah, that, that's the one, uh, very, very quickly, and made, for, uh, made my job a heck of a lot easier. Uh, on that. So it also made it very easy to integrate emission systems. I'll show a picture later on with a, a sensor that piped the video straight in, control is straight in, power the thing up, and it works. Uh, amazingly simple. The next slide. It's all simple. It's just engineering it's stuff simple. right now. The simple stuff. I want to take you a little bit through the timeline that we were working to, and, and uh, as I said, you'll see a lot of parallel activities going on here. We literally started in January of 2012 with the picture on the left there. Uh, that was the initial design concept that uh, we'd been uh, given as part of uh, the project and the joint venture. Uh, but by March, we realized, you know, this really isn't meeting the objectives of the design and is certainly not meeting all the requirements that we had intended for it. So, uh, you know, when I talked to that decision-making, uh, the speed of decision-making, uh, you know, I pulled everybody into the conference room and said, we don't think we're going to get there with this. Uh, that point we developed over 12 different concepts and uh, over the course of the next nine days and uh, at the end of that we had a meeting for about four hours and we did the pros and cons of each one and that's the resultant airplane that came out of it and that's what we flew in uh, December of 2013 so I always joke we you know we locked the locked the doors and slid pizzas under the doors uh, every couple hours to keep them fed and uh, it was amazing what we were able to get done but very, very fast decision-making loop there. By April, we had to freeze the configuration landing gear. This was a new landing gear for us. Unfortunately, uh, most of the landing gear that we have experience with tend to be on the bottom of the airplane and fold up into the wing, uh, fold sideways into the wing. And in this case, we had to fold the landing gear forward. And it was a little bit different configuration. And then, because you know my designers weren't challenged enough, I had to say, Oh, and you can't put it in the center part because that's the payload bay. So very con that was probably one of the biggest areas of constraint that we had. Uh, the landing gear and it was it turned out to be a little bit difficult to build. Uh, looking back, uh, we had a uh, lot of lot of trouble building it. Uh, we had several suppliers no bid us on making parts. We've historically always always built up our own landing gear, but we always have people making the parts for us. So we took those parts on. Uh, we've actually made a design change of landing gear and went to more of a trailing link design now. Uh, so that's that rapid prototyping mindset as well. But uh, yeah, it should make the uh, gear a lot easier. 
But this is important uh, because we weren't able to cycle. As Dan said, I had to finally just say stop. We have a concept, let's go forward with it. Uh, because in May we had to freeze the loft. And then we started building all the major wing tooling in July. And I started building wing parts, spars, skins in August. I did my first wind tunnel test in September. So very much parallel activities. What we had to do in order for me to turn the wing build on and freeze aloft before we even did the wind tunnel the first time was we had to understand the risks. What, what could possibly, we, what possibly could we find uh, that would, what would be a problem in the wind tunnel? And we talked through those and we understood what changes we could make from an operational standpoint or what changes we might be able to make to the wing late in the design process or actually late in the build process if we found a problem in the wind tunnel. So we understood those risks as we went forward and we really tried to manage those smart risks uh, in order for us to be successful with the whole program. I started building the wing in January of 2013. I should say I started building the assembly of the wing. This is a one-piece composite wing, uh, 40 feet, eight, 48 feet long. Uh, and that's the assembly tool out in the hangar in, our, uh, in the glass house. Of course, just after that, I did the high-speed wind tunnel test. I uh, did it over here at ARA uh, up in Bedford. So uh, uh, again, we learned a lot with these wind tunnels. Probably the most uh, satisfying thing what we learned is that we didn't mess it up when we designed the wing and the rest of the fuselage based on the CFD data and the hand analysis, and the wind tunnel data correlated very well to what we expected it to be. And so uh, my aero guys always say, hey, we just got lucky, Dale. They're afraid I'm going to expect it all the time now. But uh, uh, we really did. We, we kind of did some of these things in a different order. In the June and July time frame, uh, you know, going fast doesn't mean taking shortcuts. Uh, we, uh, we did a full, full uh, uh, test plan all the test points for structural loading of the wing. We proof loaded everything on the wing, the fuselage, uh, and the tail uh, to make sure that it was, everything was ready uh, for first flight. Uh, now I'm going to show you a quick video uh, of the time lapse and I'll talk about a couple things. Uh, just before I start it, you see right here all that blue uh, ironwork on the right hand side of the, uh, of the picture there is actually where we did all the testing. So we were testing right in our building as well. There's no sound on this one. I'll talk over it a little bit. Building started out pretty empty. These tools here in the foreground are where we built the uh, forward and mid fuselage sections. You can see the wing tooling right here. Uh, and then we had cameras uh, at both ends of the, uh, had cameras at both ends of the hangar. Uh, you can kind of see how the parts come together. Once the fuselage came out of the uh, fuselage mate tool, then it pretty much just lived out in the center of the hangar floor uh, while we completed the rest of the build. Uh, again, you can, the, the time-lapse video kind of goes back and forth in time a little bit. Man, see how fast our workers were? That's part of the, it's <laughs> part of the going fast. <laughs> now they slowed down. That was lunch break. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dan. <laughs> um, now, you see the wing coming in. Now, it's, it, as I mentioned, it's a one-piece wing, and it is lifted up and mated to the top of the fuselage, uh, and it's attached with, uh, with uh, four attachment bolts, uh, dual redundant load pass, and so it's uh, very structurally efficient for us, and it makes the build very easy. And that's it on that. In August of 2013, uh, we completed tests of the safety systems. So uh, we did the uh, ejection seat test over here at, Martin, at the Martin Baker facility uh, on the 1st of August. And then a couple weeks later, out at the PAC-SI facility uh, out in California, we did a test of the uh, canopy fracture system test. Again, we needed to make sure that all the systems were ready to go prior to first flight. So even though that we were using existing systems and existing components, uh, we still wanted to make sure that everything coming together was working fine. And so uh, these were some key tests for us. And uh, having never seen an ejection seat test before uh, is by far the coolest test I've ever got to watch. So <laughs> I, I would love to go again. 
In August and September, we also, uh, as I mentioned, we had a new landing gear configuration. So uh, even though the nose gear is pretty standard configuration, we, uh, we went ahead and did full drop tests on the nose gear. We did full drop tests on the main gear just to make sure that everything was uh, performing as, as expected. And I always like that perspective on the size of the gear for the airplane. So, Also during the summer of 2013, a lot of systems testing, uh, a lot of small bench testing, uh, Dan already mentioned the uh, handling quality simulator, but we also had an avionics hot bench where we did a lot of integration testing of the avionics system and some of the other systems. We had some flight controls rigging and test benches. Again, really worked through a lot of failure modes to make sure that we understood how uh, all of these systems operated. And it was really key for us as we geared up for first flight, doing all the functional testing and then having the airplane actually ready for first flight. All right. So let's back over to me at this point then. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, what exactly do you do to test everything? You know, it's, uh, it's, it's a unique opportunity for a test pilot to get put in that position, uh, and then you get to face this question. So uh, I was enrolled in a doctorate of business administration program at the time. I have since, long since now not been anymore because that marketing management textbook on the bottom didn't help me at all with this problem. So. <laughs> However, the, the stack of books uh, from the Navy Test Pilot School back in 99, 1993, that was good. And the SATP book uh, is a really great thing to get as far as uh, where do you start. So next slide, please. Uh, in there, it has a, uh, incredible words of wisdom to, uh, to reach out and, and touch the, the community of Test Pilot. Uh, so uh, no kidding, that's what you're thinking about, that first flight is uh, the first landing. So, uh, everything goes to that. Lots of other great stuff about sharing experience and, uh, of course, the one uh, test flight being worth a, a lot of opinions. Uh, so next slide, please. Uh, I did get my wish, however, to fly business jets. That was kind of the deal. You know, walk in, I said, okay, I'd love to do this, obviously. I can't you know, wipe my smile <laughs> off my face, but... You know, there's this thing I've been missing out there is uh, I know guys fly airplanes differently from, uh, from military airplanes. So uh, I went in and went, got typed in a bunch of different uh, jet airplanes and we had a Cessna 182 in the hangar and a caravan in the hangar and the small team that I had, we flew these uh, somewhat routinely uh, just to keep the flying part of the skills sharp. And uh, I didn't intend it to be this way. But uh, there are a mix of Honeywell flight decks and Collins flight decks and Garmin flight decks throughout all of these different uh, uh, airplanes. And that, just like test pilots need to fly a bunch of different airplanes to be able to see past the airplane and into the characteristics, I got to do that from an avionics perspective. And it's a good thing because we selected a completely unique avionics supplier to, uh, to our fleet. Next slide. Uh, to that end, uh, took that caravan, caravan rather, and cut some holes in the right side cockpit and put a couple of these displays in there. Uh, you know, no display is, is really active until you get it up in the air with everything working on it. So we took them up in the air and we began to learn both on a cockpit uh, simulator on a, on a desktop and also in this airplane uh, running around as well. So it was really good for grabbing knobs and, you know, Best way to learn for me is read a little bit, go out and experience a little bit, read a little bit more on what I couldn't figure out, et cetera, back and forth. This is all about getting the people uh, ready for flight. Next slide. Uh, so by the time we got the engine starts, uh, despite what this looks like, this is daytime, right? Had to be done by daytime, by, by nightfall, and, and that is, uh, I swear, that is daytime. <laughs> <laughs> it's all in the camera setting. <laughs> kind of thing. What you can't see is the back, back half of the airplane doesn't have any panels on it. Now, you didn't need them. He's like, well, what can we do? Well, we can tape the nose on, you know, and, and we can put the back half of the uh, airplane without the panels so they can inspect everything. The, the legs, the uh, landing gear are, are kind of railroad ties because uh, they were being tested in that other uh, area that, that Dale told you. Absolutely the right thing to do. But the question is, can we do it like this? I was like, oh, sure. Nobody's ever really thought about that, but why not? Uh, we needed to test the engines, so we took her outside and fired up the engines. Worked great. Next slide. Uh, tested a few other ancillary pieces. There was this uh, great question asked by somebody. It's like, you know, proximity of the, uh, of the landing gear doors uh, to the engine inlets, is, uh, is that a problem? Uh, I don't know. Uh, so, you know, he looked at the, the fluid dynamics and what have you, and the other guy said, we don't think so. And it's like, okay, well, let's kind of go find that out too. So in our high-speed taxi test, in addition to taxing uh, or testing the, uh, the parachute, uh, the upset recovery shooter, spin recovery shoot, what have you. We also uh, 
uh, made the door stay open rather than close so we could test that out as well. And it turned out, as we expected, it wasn't a problem. But it was good to know that whole flight test data as opposed to opinions thing going on. Next slide. Okay, so we get down uh, to, to first flight and uh, go ahead and roll the video. I'll talk a little bit about it. Uh, this is the airplane down on the ramp at the glass house. Had to tow it all the way up to McConnell Air Force Base and, uh, and across the ramp. So that's how fast it takes. And we're real close. Bing, uh, in we go. So around here, you'll see uh, boarding ladders. Um, we just made them out of metal, uh, bent it around to start to get in and out of it. Not exactly the most elegant solution, but a lot of airplanes in history have done that. Uh, taken off, the airplane uh, had plenty of power. Uh, it didn't hurt that it was December, but we're kind of half loaded on gas. Very nimble, very light feel to it, and uh, immediately kind of puts you at ease. Uh, left landing gear down for the first flight, as most do, and the flaps uh, there at 15, as you can see here. So most of the flight from there was all about single engine, you know, uh, flying qualities and the performance really all about that first landing. Uh, so eventually transitioned to putting the flaps all the way down. And then, uh, you know, the 1.3 V stall predicted. I don't know, hadn't stalled before, so I think it's about here. So we end up adding... Uh, a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit for me, and, and so we floated uh, quite a bit down the runway by the time it, it came to it, because uh, we had a lot of buffer in there, and the airplane uh, is, a, is a great floating machine anyway. It's a tremendous glider, as it turns out, with that wing on it. So um, that's all us uh, taking whatever the fifth one of those things and making sure we share the love with everybody that was working on the airplane, of course, uh, take lots and lots of pictures. Next slide. Okay, so risk mitigation. Gear down simplifies a lot of stuff, uh, really simplifies a lot of stuff. So next slide. Uh, but after you've done that first flight and uh, you have that one in the bag, you know, well, now you really got to get serious about it, right? Now we're going to have to commit. Now we're going to have to commit by raising the landing gear. So uh, we learned a lot of lessons in this process. Next slide. So we thought about a lot of risk mitigation uh, type of things that we could do before we raised the landing gear. Uh, looked at uh, what is Chase going to be able to see and uh, some things we could do with paint there. Uh, I took my iPad out and took a lot of video of the gear swings and, and posted that on a cloud account basically so the Chase pilot had video of the, how the gear is supposed to work. Uh, so some kind of interesting uh, unique things there. Uh, we had streaming video from the Chase pilot, required another instrumentation pallet, but that gave the folks on the ground the ability to see uh, what was going on. And then uh, we talked about what to do uh, if the gear didn't come down, you know, usually it's the down lock part that I'm more concerned about than the up and lock. Uh, we did have some uh, a delicate uh, relationship with McConnell Air Force Base since we had a right to be there, but we're kind of back new in the game. We were trying to work that relationship very carefully as well. Next slide. So uh, we painted uh, white with some red stripes. Uh, not the first guys to ever think about that, although at the time I thought I was. Uh, it's probably because I had that picture in my mind from a lot of other airplanes I flew, so. There you go, that ought to work really well. Uh, can't do that on the nose gear though, because it's a different setup. So I said, you know, I'll, I'll paint a black line and when those line up, it'll be kind of roughly uh, the same. Uh, turns out a few other airplanes have the top one and I honestly didn't know this, the A-10's got the black line on it just like that. And I, so great minds think alike, I guess, or average minds think alike. Next slide. Okay, so we went out to do this on flight four, flew a couple flights just to get some uh, air under us. And the first time we made that uh, oh so important commitment, which quite frankly, I was much more uh, apprehensive about uh, committing in that fashion than I was even on the first flight. Um, so we, uh, we got the heavy, heavy lifting done. Uh, the gear moved uh, in the manner that it was supposed to, but we did find a couple of things that uh, required some engineering attention. So why don't we uh, go with the next <laughs> slide and I'll show you what this looks like. So after the first one, we get uh, unsafe up. Okay, well, that's, uh, that's not the end of the world, I suppose. Uh, what happened is uh, the blow-up picture, the nose, the gear doors are supposed to close like that. They close the other way and kind of stuck uh, uh, a little bit, not quite all the way up, and that stops the sequence of the landing gear, uh, so the gear doors remained open. So we got an airborne test of that. Does it affect the engine inlets uh, kind of thing right out uh, of the back? All right, so next slide. Uh, then we put them down and unsafe down. Well, that definitely was not in the good category. Um, so that requires more engineering attention uh, here as well, all in the same flight, and uh, you can imagine the kind of unkind things I was thinking. Uh, so uh, we did, however, get a good up-close view of the, uh, the nice lines I had painted on there, and uh, you know, you can take a look at it. They look pretty darn good, you know? So we were kind of thinking things weren't that bad. Go ahead, next slide. 
Uh, it's what it looked like in the cockpit. Uh, nose was happy, the uh, mains were not. Uh, the green dot on the top indicates the nose down lock and the, the left and right, of course, are uh, conspicuously missing. Next. Okay, so Chase looks out there. Uh, he's thinking, well, I got this video. It all looked, kind of went the right way. It looks pretty good. Next slide. Uh, so he reported being a good test pilot. They are apparently down and locked. <laughs> I'm not going to commit. They're apparently down. <laughs> so looks like it looks okay. So we're all thinking, I'm, I'm breaking my arm, patting myself on the back because I painted red lines on there, and they're apparently down and locked. It looks good. So we're thinking this is an indication problem that was in nature. Next slide. So we land, and... And it uh, turns out that it wasn't an indication uh, issue. Uh, the gear doors, of course, are still uh, open. Uh, but as soon as we applied the brakes, go ahead, next slide, uh, those lights popped green. So uh, what we found out is a little bit of uh, that way, <laughs> completed the cycle, and, uh, and the doors popped shut at that point as well. So we learned a lot on that uh, first flight, a little bit more than we, or that fourth flight than we expected. Next. So what do you do about this, Dale? So as we started looking at this thing, we're like, we had this flat plate with this drag brace that was right in the breeze. And uh, what we realized is that it was putting about a 90-pound force. I'm sorry, I'm going to zap you. Yeah. Uh, there's a 90-pound 90 90 force that was put, actually acting against the landing gear fully coming down. And uh, so it's like a, if you have a clothesline and you push with the weight in the middle, the clothesline almost always deflects. And that's exactly what was happening here. So my arrow guys came to me and said, hey, we just need to put this little brace, uh, the, I'm sorry, this little fairing, put a little wedge on the back side of the drag brace and put a little bull nose on the front side. And Dale, that, that force is going to go down from, 20, uh, from 90 to 20 pounds. And I'm like, really? Okay. So, uh, and sure enough, that's what we did. We taped these little foam blocks on and uh, worked just fine. So we flew a couple of extra flights in between uh, while uh, Dale was working all this kind of stuff. But uh, by the time we finally got it working with those fairings the way we thought, uh, it was up to flight number 10. Use a silent count in here so somebody could say, stop. Gear doors open is the first part of the sequence. Uh, everything goes up. Uh, I didn't mention it fast enough, but uh, when we show you the gear going down, you can see those fairings in there. And <laughs> that's what. <laughs> One happy pilot up there in the run. Hooray! We can do some up and away testing. <laughs> All righty, next slide. So, and here they are coming uh, in reverse, coming down. This is what I'm obviously more, more concerned about, but you can have a look at, uh, at where those fairings are relative to all that. So gear pops open, nose is coming down, and, and uh, up there tight uh, on the landing gear is that fairing. So we identified the problem and, uh, and we figured out a fix. And of course, foam with uh, speed tape is not uh, a long-term solution. So we still had uh, a little bit more uh, to do on that, Dale. So we came in and uh, really replaced the foam with just an extra spring mechanism that would help uh, positively engage the down-locking mechanism in place. And uh, so you can see the, uh, the big spring mechanism there that is uh, pushing as hard as it can against that drag brace. So go ahead and roll that one. And this is uh, the end result. You can, you can have a look at uh, your opinion on how much more forcefully the landing comes down, how much more positively it locks. Nice strong push there. And we've been flying that since for uh, flight 43, I think. Uh, the gear up is uh, in the reverse. I think we can probably go ahead and hit next on that and press on. Uh, so, uh, beyond 23 months, there it was. Our first flight got the gear up and down. Uh, what do you do next? Uh, we committed to, uh, we kind of had a, a conversation and we said, well, let's do the Babe Ruth thing and point at the uh, center field and say, by God, we're going to Farnborough. You know, we've designed, build in 23 months, and I kind of went white as a sheet and went, oh, okay, uh, I've got some things I need uh, for that, and let's put the scotch down. If you still think this tomorrow, we'll do it. All right. So... A lot of modifications to go. I arbitrarily said, ah, 100 hours, 100 hours on the airplane, that'd be, that'd be great. Uh, and furthermore, we committed to do a sensor demonstration as soon as we got back, which means that work had to be done before we left. Uh, so we did have a full-on uh, uh, MX-15 HDI sensor lift mechanism in there and, uh, and all the other integrated piece. Next slide. So important to, uh, to take a look at the calendar on here, uh, where that actually happened. We committed to Farnborough before uh, we had a successful gear down and gear up evolution. 
Uh, by the time you saw that string mechanism, we had the final one. It was less than a month before I left for Farnborough. So uh, how do you go fast? Well, you're going to have to make some commitments that, uh, you know, be audacious. A big, hairy, audacious goal, as someone had said. Next slide. Alrighty, so that's what the route look like. We're not going to spend a lot of time going from here to the end. Uh, just some interesting uh, stuff, but we had a bunch of sorties, 19 of them. Uh, a long way to go back and forth across the Great White North. Uh, a total of 38 and change hours, uh, almost 50,000 pounds of gas. Airplane was a complete trooper going the whole way. Really didn't have any maintenance issues to speak of uh, anywhere, although we brought four guys that thoroughly enjoyed going uh, back and forth across there in a sovereign, one of those chase airplanes. Next slide. Uh, out of Mirabel, uh, Canada there, and onto Facebook, oh my gosh, people took pictures. Uh, and they, boom, exploded out onto the uh, internet. And so you always, as much like being mic'd up here, you got to be careful what you say and what you do in the cockpit. So we were always mindful of that. Next. Uh, so the cockpit uh, was a pretty good place to be, actually. Uh, over North America, anyway, had a data link weather uh, down the bottom right. This is just kind of a stock system uh, plugged in. You plug the right bits of data, go in the right spots. And I've got uh, a computing system to tell me where I'm going to be at my reporting checkpoints with how much gas I'm going to have to be when I get there. I've got complete situational awareness of, uh, of even flying in here in England with lots of different special use airspace and warning areas. It was a, it was a, a real benefit. Next. Uh, we got up to Iqaluit, uh, again, applauding ourselves for having made some great weather decisions and getting up there, and then a low pressure front backed up. Uh, right on us, and by the time it was going to leave, uh, it was going to cover where we were going in Greenland. So we thought we were, uh, we were going to be spending Riot and Farnborough there in, in Iqaluit uh, for a while. And uh, I like Iqaluit, nothing wrong with it, no form of foul, but I didn't want to spend weeks there. And it's, uh, it gets to be a long place to be after about six hours. So <laughs> it's right there in the middle of all that uh, awful uh, icing uh, conditions. So we were just praying for a pilot report. Next slide. We finally got one of those, and we were out of there uh, in about 30 seconds. So we're, we're all dressed up with the uh, crossing the Atlantic, and, uh, and that's a great picture. I, just, I shiver just to even look at it. Uh, I had my iPad in the cockpit as well, as you can see the holder for it. I was doing the selfie thing. Didn't have a little cool stick thing for me. <laughs> all right, next, next slide. Mod. That's right, next mod. Uh, <laughs> you know, we were, uh, there's a lot of icebergs down there. Uh, Dale hit early on about the non-developmental nature of these things. Uh, I'm either a complete idiot or I have great faith in the non-developmental uh, nature of the airplane, and that is absolutely true. I have great faith in, uh, you make your own judgment of those other things. But the airplane is real solid, uh, a great combination of proven uh, technology, and I was happy to have it uh, when I was looking out, stuff like that. Next slide. Coming out of Iceland, we did a little inadvertent icing testing. Uh, it was, was not forecast. Iceland, go, go figure, right? Maybe, maybe it was back to that idiot thing. I don't know. But uh, uh, the, the clouds were looking kind of strange, but there wasn't anything forecast. What I did have in my list of I got to haves. I got to have a boarding ladder because it won't look cool in Farnborough, you know, having to have somebody get me out of the airplane. And I got to have engine and eyes because I think that's a reasonable thing to ask for and you can reasonably do it. Uh, we now have uh, wing and tail and ice uh, before I do it again. Uh, because this kind of stuff happened, you know, as you're going along and do your best to avoid it. But uh, that was interesting anyway. Got kind of quiet in the cockpit for a little bit. Uh, <laughs> next slide. Okay, we took advantage of the opportunity to take some great pictures. Um, my wife vacationed here as a kid, so it was fantastic to send those pictures back. Jamie Hunter uh, took these in particular, and uh, we were working next slide uh, with Reese Williams at the Empire Test Pilot School. Uh, that's the back of Reese's head uh, up, in the, uh, up in the front there having a good look. He was the fifth guy to, to be in the airplane uh, and fly it. Next. Uh, also did some uh, terrain avoidance warning system testing down in uh, Lake, uh, you guys can tell me how to say that. <laughs> it's in Wales, I can say that part. Uh, those are fantastic. I think the movies of, the, of this have just hit the internet as well. So I, I'm, I'm Swear all that stuff was above 500 feet. Next slide. <laughs> there we all caged in at Riyadh. Uh, next. And uh, in addition to a cool picture of my good buddy Don Parker, uh, to a person, anybody walking up the airplane goes, holy cow, it's a lot bigger than I thought it was. Uh, so he's sitting under the wing. You see how far up there? And this is the weather, uh, as it always is. Uh, last summer was just gorgeous. I mean, we, we put SPF a, a million on our faces every morning because the, the English sun was blazing us to death. 
Uh, it's, uh, when I landed in Empire Test Pilot School, it was raining, so it's a great place to be if it's raining or sun, as it turns out, uh, shade or shelter. Uh, we had a mock-up of the turret on the, under the nose of that one, and uh, other thing to note is the boarding ladder that was integrated somewhere in between uh, all that other timeline stuff that you saw. Moves to avionics like that, put a boarding ladder in, good to go. All right, next slide. Okay, so we came back and uh, did this vigilant guard exercise with the Air National Guard there in uh, Kansas, uh, a northern command, the way the uh, U.S. Air Force splits up, uh, stuff up. Uh, salient point here is uh, this is a 4.2-hour uh, sortie, uh, all told. Just with the gas that we have on board the airplane, uh, we have plans to put an aux tank, uh, an auxiliary tank in the payload bay as well to extend that. Uh, but this was a 4.2-hour sortie with over three hours on station, uh, 90 miles north of uh, Wichita, where it took off. And that was the video. Just It shows you what you can do when you take standard uh, video inputs. You plug a standard video coming from a sensor and a hand controller, and there you go. We're uh, providing uh, three solid hours. To make matters even better, the technology today is we put this out on, uh, on the Internet and gave the uh, link address for a protected site to whomever, and you could walk around with your iPad seeing what we're doing from flying up overhead. It's, the technology is there, and that's what makes it uh, so capable of putting these pieces together now in a new way. Next slide. I guess back to you, sir. All right. Well, we're uh, just about wrapped up here. Really where we're at today, we have uh, completed over 140 flights and over 270 flight hours. Uh, so we set the, at the beginning of the Sorry, at the beginning of the year, we had hoped to be somewhere between 250 to 300 flight hours, and uh, we were very happy to have gotten to 275. Made a lot of progress. We really have, as much as we can with this current airplane, uh, expanded the flight envelope. We've been up over 300 knots uh, indicated, uh, 455 knots true, Mach 0.78, up to 45,000 feet. Uh, we really have had a good chance. We've evaluated all of the initial uh, flying qualities, uh, low speed, high speed, full range of CGs for the airplane. Again, it's been uh, very gratifying to watch how the, uh, uh, the data as it comes off the airplane has been matching up with the wind tunnel data uh, quite well. Uh, we've completed all of our preliminary performance uh, evaluations. And really right now, we're just, we continue to develop the systems, uh, individual systems. Uh, we're also uh, moving forward to do some demonstration tests uh, and actually fly customers and uh, fly other people as well. But uh, it's really important for us because everything that we learn here goes into the production design. And so uh, as we proceed with the production design and move into a certification program, everything that we learn uh, by going fast with this first airplane uh, is translating directly into the next airplane. And it's been uh, uh, very successful for us. Uh, I'm not going to read through all of these on the accomplishments, but. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that the availability of the airplane has just been exceptional. Uh, when we're not in a maintenance cycle, we just keep flying, and uh, we're very pleased about that. And we really have uh, validated a lot of our numbers. Uh, people have been a little bit skeptical when we start saying, hey, we're going to be $3,000 per hour. Uh, that's gas, it's maintenance, it's uh, uh, reserves for spare parts, engine reserves. So it's really what we expect to see is the entire cost of operation of the airplane, uh, maybe minus the pilots and the hangar space, uh, but we've uh, been able to prove it out with the airplane that we have. Dan's already talked about the uh, uh, first Atlantic uh, crossing. Uh, having been at Farnborough, it was just an overwhelming response. Uh, we had so much press and so many people coming by to see us. Uh, uh, in addition to being out in the blazing sun, it was we are on our feet talking all day long. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun, but it was really busy and has led to a lot of opportunities for us. Uh, and then you know, the, the vigilant guard exercise, great exposure in the U.S. And again, you know, it was kind of nice. Uh, from, an, uh, from a program manager standpoint, it's always great to have objectives for your team. And the first uh, two years, the objective was easy. You know you need to go fly an airplane. And after that, then the uh, trip to Farnborough uh, and the vigilant guard exercise uh, provided great focal points. So probably, you know, one of the things that, you know, we were talking about going fast, just having some focus for everyone to be able to like rally around uh, was immensely powerful for us, uh, for the team to really accomplish what we did accomplish. And uh, finally, really just to, to kind of summarize, there's a couple points that I just wanted to, to make again. 
as we go through it, we, we were very successful developing the airplane using commercial practices. All that stuff that I was talking about with reusing the existing uh, equipment, uh, really exceptionally lean team. Uh, we, uh, you know, I always highlight with that chart that I showed earlier about the uh, manpower. We were 60% of the manpower in half the time. And uh, so, you know, I'm very, I am exceptionally proud of my team and if, uh, if they get tired of hearing it, I think sometimes. But uh, the early collaboration with flight tests, having Dan in the building, uh, that was probably, uh, I've had the opportunity to work a number of programs and that is the first time uh, that I've probably seen, uh, had the flight test team so embedded with the design team from the start. And at the beginning of time, you probably didn't realize how much effect that was going to have. But uh, having Dan in every discussion, uh, it assisted the team with decision making. Uh, but more importantly, Dan understood the systems, I think sometimes better than some of the engineers did, uh, because the engineers tended to work in their own little area. Uh, as much as we try to break down silos down, a flight, a flight control guy tends to get caught up in flight controls. And Dan was seeing the big picture, and so sometimes I, I, I think Dan was seeing how everything tied together very well. And how that helped us was, uh, you know, this wasn't a case then of tossing Dan the keys when the airplane was done and say, good luck. Uh, this really was a collaborative effort, and uh, again, it's just sometimes I think that that little bit gets kind of undersold. Uh, as I mentioned, the off-the-shelf components, especially like the engine, has really increased a lot of confidence. Uh, and a lot of our, reduce our time. Um, but you know, we've learned a lot along the way. So we talked a little bit about the landing gear example, but every time you go up uh, with a new system, even if it's an existing set of system components, you still learn some new stuff. And so this has really been giving us a lot of confidence as we go forward with the production design uh, that we're fixing these problems now. So where are we going for the next couple of years? Well, right now we're actively working on getting a customer. And uh, we're, uh, you know, I'm convinced at this point it's not a matter of if, it's when. Uh, we have a lot of, uh, we have many, uh, many countries that are interested in the airplane. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we keep uh, our business development team exceptionally busy. So, uh, and we're hoping to keep them busier. Uh, but um, we have a lot of system refinement, a lot of flight demonstrations this year. Uh, it's hard to believe that I think if we had talked about two or three months ago, I wouldn't have known exactly what we're going to be doing this year. And uh, I think we're now at the point where we're starting to question if we can accomplish all of the things that we want to do because we have so many people that want to see the airplane. Uh, and right now we're preparing for uh, production certification. So really taking that rapid prototyping concept. Uh, you know, my last parting thought, uh, the rapid prototyping piece, we, we could have done the program one of two ways. Uh, the first way is let the engineers diddle on it for a couple years until they knew they had everything perfect and then we could have built an airplane. Or we could set some very audacious goals and accept that we probably might, that we probably will make a few mistakes along the way, that we'll certainly take a few risks along the way on whether or not a certain design feature was going to work. Um, but by getting the airplane up in the air, it's gotten it out in front of people, which has validated some of our market assessment. But more importantly, as in, from the engineering side of things, uh, we learn something new every day. And so all of those lessons that we've been able to learn uh, have gone in, and I know that there's things on the airplane that we probably would have never changed uh, without actually having tested them the first time. So it's the, uh, you know, we, we joke a lot about uh, within engineering at Cessna that uh, when you start flight test, that's really the first time that all the aerodynamics and all the structures and all the systems actually come together. And so you learn so much just by doing it, uh, by taking an approach that allows you to iterate on things. And uh, we really uh, used a, that iterative process uh, to our advantage. So, so with that, really want to thank uh, uh, you guys for hosting us and more importantly for you guys coming out and listening to us this evening. Uh, and we're now going to open it up for questions. So thank you very much. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you.
Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.